and welcome to the PathMig Psychiatry for Primary Care podcast. Hi everyone, this is Whitney Landa and welcome back to the Psychiatry for Primary Care podcast. Today we're going to talk about diagnosing bipolar disorder. Diagnosing bipolar disorder is tricky and difficult even for us psychiatrists. So I'll do my best to walk you through some tips, but if you end up not recognizing it for some time, just know you're not alone. That happens to me where I think I'm treating someone for depression and ADHD and then realize I'm actually working with a bipolar disorder. The important thing is to uh, always monitor for bipolar disorder because we know it does emerge over time and is typically preceded by depression or other illnesses like anxiety or ADHD. And in fact, anxiety and ADHD are often part of the picture. Anxiety can be part of the bipolar disorder and ADHD is often comorbid with bipolar disorder and mirror some of the symptoms, further making it a tricky thing to diagnose. Comorbidity is sort of the expectation in bipolar disorder rather than the exception. So when we're thinking about who needs to be screened for bipolar, I would say anyone who comes in with one of those comorbid illnesses, especially depression, since we know that's actually a core feature of the illness that typically presents before mania or hypomania. So I would say anyone that you're treating for depression should be screened and you should be on the lookout for people with ADHD or OCD that you know, we know that there's a slightly increased risk for them to develop it as well. I would especially pay attention to anyone who has sort of cyclic symptoms of any kind, especially anxiety. Anxiety isn't officially in a bipolar diagnosis, but it's really often truly a core component of it. A lot of my patients with bipolar will have cycles of anxiety that tie to their hypomania, mania, or depression or seem independent to me, but are clearly cycles. So they'll have a couple weeks where their anxiety is really high, then it will kind of go back to baseline, then it will worsen again. And it's not that their stressful life events or any specific triggers sort of comes out of nowhere. So anything cyclic, make sure to screen for bipolar because we know it's a very cyclic illness. Another group to screen carefully for is anyone with a family history of bipolar disorder especially a first-degree relative because we know they're at higher risk, or anyone with substance abuse concerns because we know that they can be comorbid and people with bipolar disorder are more likely to use substances and often turn to substances for treatment of their bipolar disorder. So if you have someone really struggling with substances, it's really important to do a thorough history and ask them if any of those symptoms ever happen when they aren't using and accept that Sometimes they will use, but that may not explain everything that's happening for them. Sometimes they're self-treating their bipolar disorder. And as I referred to earlier, bipolar disorder emerges. It has a prodromal phase where we might be seeing some symptoms, but it seems to be primarily depression or primarily anxiety, but we just sort of get these little flickers of symptoms that build just pay attention to those and pay attention to your gut instinct. If your gut instinct is telling you, okay, this is 
this is concerning me, something's a little off, just pay close attention to it and see if that develops or worsens over time or kind of clearly defines itself into a more specific set of symptoms. And don't beat yourself up if you miss it at first. As I said, that happens to all of us. This is a hard thing to do. And especially at the beginning when it's more subtle, it's easy to dismiss those symptoms as, okay, that person got a bad night's sleep or yeah, but there was that thing in their life that probably caused it. And we don't want to overdiagnose bipolar. We want to be cautious with that because that can follow people and, and we don't want to give them a diagnosis they don't really have. So it's better to be cautious at the beginning, but it does mean that you might not catch it right away. And that's pretty normal. So don't beat yourself up about that at all. If any of you guys have heard me talk, you know that I like to think about bipolar disorder as a very distinct third energy state. And to me, it makes the most sense to think about that. We'll go through sort of dig fast in DSM-5 criteria, but this is the way intuitively I think about it. So we all know sort of euthymic mood, what that feels like. And a lot of us know what depression feels like, that kind of very low energy state where we're feeling down or numb, things are really hard. Anxiety is its own energy state, and it can be a very high energy state that's uncomfortable, but sort of distinct from hypomania or mania, and we'll talk more about that. But if you think about it as a third energy state that cycles with the others, it makes more sense, and you can kind of describe that to people in a way where it connects with them rather than giving them a list of symptoms. I also, when I ask people about the symptoms, I frame it that I'm talking about a distinct period of time in which they have these symptoms or they're worse than their normal baseline and that it's a cluster of symptoms that lasts for a distinct period of time and then goes away. And it's outside of substance use. So of course I wanna know if it happens due to substances as well but my focus is really without substances and that it's a distinct, very clear period of time with a change in their energy level. And that's either not needing as much sleep or feeling really high energy in a way that you normally wouldn't with your baseline level of sleep. So if someone tells me, yeah, I mean, I'm getting my usual seven and a half hours a night. Normally though, I'd feel tired by the end of the day and for maybe three or four days a month, that doesn't happen. I feel like I've got great energy. I can keep going. You know, I don't feel that deep need to go to bed at the end of the day, even though I'm still getting my seven and a half hours that normally I feel tired with. I'm going to consider that to be that distinct third energy, even though they're sleeping the same amount at night. And that high energy doesn't have to be euphoric, happy, good. It can be irritable and angry. I've met some people with bipolar disorder who are the sweetest, nicest people, unless they're manic or hypomanic, and then they're just mean and irritable, but they've got tons and tons of energy. So definitely don't always assume that it's a good energy. And it can be too that people feel a lot more anxious when they're manic or hypomanic, if they're also irritable. Um, or it could be that they have a lot of anxiety, but that anxiety is much less or goes away when they're hypomanic or manic. So definitely think of anxiety as a key marker and something to follow closely. 
So I want to touch on, you know, DSM-5 diagnoses of mania and dig fast, which is that thing we all learn in medical school. I don't feel is as useful as thinking about that third energy state. That feels more intuitive to me. But I think a lot of us do think about mania and hypomania through dig fast. So we'll start with D, which is distractibility. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Getting more distracted, not finishing tasks, starting lots of projects and leaving them. If someone does have ADHD or looking for a worsening from their baseline, um, and that's where it gets a little tricky with ADHD is, you know, there are things in life that makes ADHD worse and is not necessarily mania. So again, can be very tricky to diagnose. The next one is I, which is indiscretion. So doing things that you wouldn't normally, often things that you would normally find shameful or embarrassing or bring you a consequence. For hypomania, that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily an indiscretion. I have lots of people with hypomania who actually are more likely to go out for a team, commit to a project, talk to their boss, do things that are positive when they're hypomanic. They might take on way too many of those positive things, but they're actually things I would want them to do that would provide growth to them and would be a great opportunity. So aren't necessarily indiscretions, but things they wouldn't do at baseline. So the way I ask about that is I say, anything that you've done during this period of time that's out of character for you, even if it wouldn't be out of character for an average person or someone I pick off the street, something that's out of character for you. G is grandiosity. Again, this is not necessary for mania or hypomania, but clearly if someone thinks they're God or they're the president, that's also psychotic unless they really are the president. So you, um, you know, are going to clearly note that as bipolar one, but grandiosity can be more subtle in the sense of, oh, you know, everyone always loves me. I'm so popular. I'm definitely going to get this job. I'm the best candidate and could seem like confidence if it's subtle. So again, this can be very difficult to diagnose. The next one, F, is flight of ideas. This one can be especially tricky with adolescents because they love to say that they're manic or that they have flight of ideas and they really mean they're anxious or excited. So I like to clarify what kind of thoughts they're having. If when they have their flight of ideas, it's always really anxious thoughts or when they're especially excited about something. You know, I had someone say, well, it only happens right before vacation. And it's all the stuff they're really excited about for vacation before they fall asleep at night. So you just really (laughs) drill down on exactly what they mean. Uh, It happens all the time with anxious thoughts. And people don't realize what we mean by fast. So a good way to tease that out is to ask, do they ever feel like they're piling on top of each other or going so fast that you're having trouble thinking them? Someone who's truly been manic knows exactly what you mean by that. And someone who has never been manic, but maybe has rumination or anxiety will find that a little puzzling. The next one is increased goal-directed activity. So for you know, one teen I worked with, they would stay up and clean their room when they were hypomanic. Another woman I work with suddenly will commit to things and she'll join committees, do lots of projects, way more than would be humanly possible for her to actually do. I have another patient who just bakes all day long. But any sort of increase in the amount of 
activities or things you would commit to. It can also be physical, so just being physically agitated or restless, uh, feeling like you can't stop moving, you always have to be doing things, even if you're not actually committing to lots of different activities. S stands for sleep, but again, it doesn't have to be a change in sleep. And I think we over attribute sleep as being necessary for the diagnosis. Again, it's a change in energy, decreased need for sleep. So if they're normally tired on that seven and a half hours, but three days a month they feel great, that counts because normally they would need more than their seven and a half hours to feel great and rested, even though that's kind of their baseline level of sleep. T is for talkativeness. So again, the, the sort of standard thing people think is that people are talking really fast and are hard to understand. It can also be generally more talkative. I've had patients where they tend to talk a lot more, they interrupt more, they run on sentences more, ramble more, but they're easy to understand. It's not that they sound different than you know, that the person next to them at the cafe sounds, but it's different for them. And people notice the difference when they're with them. That leads me to an excellent point that I'll also say multiple times during this podcast is get collateral from friends or family who know them well. Often when I'm sort of struggling with whether or not someone might have a bipolar 2 disorder I'll bring in a family member or a close friend to ask about that. Do they notice these episodic changes? Because again, it's easy to attribute them to different things in life or for people who are going through them, the patient themselves, to not really recognize them. And that makes it tricky too, because you're really depending on that patient report. And if they're not recognizing their symptoms, they're obviously not going to tell you about them. But their friends or family might say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah you know, three days a month, their ADHD goes off the rails. Or, you know, I noticed that before they get depressed, they always have these couple days where, you know, for one patient, she would develop these odd, intense interests, like all of a sudden be super, super into witchcraft for three days. And then that goes away and is followed by a depression. You know, the next month she gets super, super interested in chemistry for three days. And then followed by a depression. And that's just sort of the pattern almost every month. So then I can clearly say, oh, okay, and do you notice that they talk more or they do these other things? And it's pretty clear, yes, that's a hypomania, but the patient themselves might not have recognized that. So just to sort of round out the official diagnoses section, uh, mania should last longer than one week or involve a hospitalization, psychosis, or a severe consequence, or marked impairment in functioning. So if someone you know, has promiscuous sex, spends a lot of money they can't afford to spend, those are really serious consequences. Getting super interested in witchcraft and buying $200 worth of books for most people is not going to have a serious consequence. So that wouldn't really count in there. Uh, but if their hypomania lasts longer than a week, technically it can count as mania as long as it has that kind of marked impairment. Um, if it stays pretty mild, it stays a hypomania, even if it lasts longer than two weeks. And to meet criteria for hypomania, it needs to last three days with an elevated mood or four days with an irritable mood. A lot of people, especially in that sort of prodromal phase when they're adolescents or young adults, 
they'll have one or two days of it and where it's clearly hypomania, but it doesn't quite meet the three to four day mark. So I diagnose them as unspecified bipolar and watch them closely. They tend to sort of develop and then clearly meet criteria for a diagnosis. If they have one to two days of what is clearly hypomania, I diagnose them with unspecified bipolar disorder. Most of the time, it is that prodromal phase and it will sort of declare itself either as bipolar 2 or bipolar 1 as time goes on. Something I brought up earlier that's really important is that idea about substance use. A lot of substances will cause these symptoms. Cannabis can cause them, alcohol can cause some of them, you know, certainly the stimulants can cause them. So if someone comes in and they seem hypomanic or manic, definitely get a drug screen because you want to know if the substances are causing the symptoms. And I would keep doing it if they say that they happen off of drugs because I've had patients where they use a lot of drugs, but they do truly have bipolar disorder and having that evidence that they had an episode and were clear of substances can be helpful in terms of them being hospitalized or getting other services later. So even if it's been positive a few times, if they say, no, this time I swear I didn't use anything and they're having symptoms, go ahead and get that drug screen. You know, the caveat being that not everything shows up. So synthetic cannabis doesn't show up on drug screens usually. Some of the psychedelics don't show up. So it's not foolproof, but still good to do. Uh, again, I've had you know, patients denied for services because people say, well, they say it's bipolar, but you know, I think it's substance use. And for you to say, no, 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 I, I have documented negative drug screens when they were clearly in an episode can help them access some really great bipolar services through the county. And I'm just going to say again that this is a hard thing to diagnose. So if you aren't sure, get that collateral. Close friend or family's perspective can make all the difference. And don't hesitate to just keep it in the back of your mind and keep monitoring for it. Because we know, especially if someone's younger, that it could be declaring itself. There's also a secondary peak, especially for women in their 40s. So even if you think, oh, they're a little old for this, no, it can declare itself in adults as well. So pay attention to your gut instinct. And if things feel a little off to you, keep your eye on it. One question I get asked a lot is, well, if I think it might be bipolar disorder, but I'm not sure, what should I do? And I would say just treat as you normally would at first. So if they have what seems like maybe some hypomania, maybe it's okay to use an SSRI. Completely fine in bipolar too. If they have clear signs that, you know, this might be bipolar one or they definitely have bipolar one and you can tell, don't use an SSRI. But if it's unspecified bipolar or bipolar two, totally fine to go ahead and do that. If the SSRIs don't work or they worsen the hypomania, then I'll move to something like Lamictal as my next favorite because it doesn't have a lot of nasty side effects. Obviously, we increase it very slowly to decrease the risk of Stevens-Johnson's, 
but outside of that risk, it's comparatively very well tolerated with fewer bad side effects. There's not lab monitoring, so I really like it. It also works just great for depression and anxiety. So while it's FDA approved for bipolar disorder, I wouldn't worry about that. And tell people you don't worry about that. It works great for depression and anxiety and you like to use it. You can also think about things like Abilify if you're just not sure and you're worried that you might throw them into an episode. And if they have an episode after you start an SSRI, if the symptoms stop as soon as they stop the medicine, then that doesn't change their diagnosis. But if they continue to have symptoms after the medicine has stopped, then it does change their diagnosis. And we kind of consider it as the medicine helped the illness declare itself um, as long as the symptoms continue after the medicine's actually out of their system. My final piece of advice to you is don't feel bad if that does happen. So often you, you think you're treating a depression and the person doesn't have a known family history of bipolar disorder or any other serious risk factors. You give them an SSRI, they develop hypomania or mania, and then you have to switch their diagnosis and treat them. That does happen. And oftentimes, because of the stigma, they do have a family history they didn't know about. Or everyone knew that there was depression and substance use, but they thought those romantic symptoms were due to the substances, so no one thought about bipolar disorder. So maybe someday we'll have a test we can give or we can tell ahead of time, but we're certainly nowhere near that right now. And if they do develop mania, go ahead and send them to the emergency room. If it's hypomania, if it is having consequences or they really dislike the feeling, you could give them a little bit of Seroquel or Abilify to smooth that out. But hypomania shouldn't be destructive if it has a lot of really horrible consequences that moves it into mania, and then you would want to send them to the emergency room so they can be seen by a psychiatrist. I hope that this episode was helpful, helps guide you through these difficult clinical situations. Have a great day.